Hello and welcome to the podcast of Vineyard Church here in Maryville, Tennessee. We post our Sunday messages here each week, as well as our conversations episodes, which include interviews, special announcements, and in-depth teaching. You can visit vineyardchurch.us to learn more about us or to access the audio archive. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And now, here's the episode. It's good to see you guys. My name is Aaron. I'm a pastor here. Uh, if you're new to the church or we haven't met yet, please come say hello. That, that'd make me happy. I'll be out in the entryway after the service. Uh, come say hi. That'd be really good. We're going to jump into a new sermon series here in just a minute. But uh, two quick things first. I just want to let you know, if you're new to the church and you haven't yet gone to a Next Step dinner, um, it's tonight. And like, Technically, it's too late, but it's not too late. Um, it, uh, go ahead and register online. We'll, we'll, we'll sort it out. Uh, come tonight uh, at 6 o'clock. You can ask questions about the church. We'll kind of give you the rundown, meet the staff, that type of stuff. It's a good time. You should come. Um, and then also, I want to let you know, this Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, is Ash Wednesday. And you might hear that and say, what the heck is Ash Wednesday? <laughs> well, it's the beginning of Lent. And you might say, what the heck is Lent? <laughs> and fair enough, um, if, that's where, if that's where you're at. Um, here's the thing, for centuries, uh, the church has marked out uh, the days leading up to Easter as sort of a special season, as almost like a, a sacred time. And uh, what people often do during these days leading up to Easter, they'll, they'll take time to fast, uh, set aside extra time uh, for prayer, really lean into spiritual practices. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's an important part of the church calendar. Uh, so I want to put it on your radar. Um, so when people do that stuff, it's called observing Lent. Hear me say this. Observing Lent is a tradition. It's not a command. There's not a verse for that. There's no pressure or obligation here at all. If you feel like doing it, great. If you don't, great. Totally fine. But uh, there's something unique and powerful about this season leading up to Easter, just like I think Advent is unique and powerful leading up to Christmas. And doing some intentional things I think is worth considering. So um, to that end, uh, we have a podcast, as you know, where we post the sermons each week. Uh, but for seasons, and we're starting season two now of this, we're adding also an, uh, an additional uh, podcast every week called the Conversations Podcast. And it's on the same feed as the sermons podcast, so the same one. Uh, but on that, we take time, we have conversations, we work through some stuff that we don't have time for on Sundays. Um, and this past one, it just we started the season up this past Thursday, and our guest for that was Reverend Doug Floyd. He's a good friend. He's a wonderful man. He's an Anglican priest, um, and he just takes us by the hand, you know, and helps a bunch of us non-liturgical types see what this season is all about. So if you're familiar with Lent or not, I just want to encourage you to get that. It's a great resource. And then also this Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, 7 p.m., at the public library, Reverend Floyd is actually uh, facilitating an Ash Wednesday service. So if you want to participate, then you're welcome to come to that. Um, so also, for what it's worth, and it's not much, but I have decided that this year I'm going to observe Lent. And I'm telling you this because uh, there's a couple things I kind of want to invite you along with me to do if you would like to. Um, so one of the things I'm going to do for an additional spiritual practice, I'm going to take 10 minutes a day every day to meditate specifically on the 23rd Psalm such a rich and powerful six verses that have changed the world. 
And uh, so 10 minutes a day to pray, med- meditate, journal, whatever, focus, uh, reflect on uh, those uh, six verses. And I encourage you guys, if you want to, you can do that with me. I'm also going to be reading a book called Life Without Lack. Um, that book is written by Dallas Willard. You guys know I love that name. And we're going to slowly work our way uh, through that book. So if you are inclined to do that with me, that's my invitation. Let's do it together. Um, I'm also going to be cutting sugar. Let's not do that together because it feels like church would be dangerous. Like if somebody <laughs> says one wrong thing, we all just, it just turns into a brawl. So maybe we shouldn't all, all do that. Um, and then for this season, what we're going to do, just sort of connected to that, is each week we are going to be reading the 23rd Psalm aloud together starting today. So I know this is different, but let me invite you to stand. And we're going to read the 23rd Psalm aloud together here. Um, I would love for you to read it just from memory and not use the screen, but I bet you didn't memorize it in the CSB. So um, you can follow along. And again, if you would read aloud with me, begin with verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Thanks for doing that along with me. Hey, let me just acknowledge something real quick. It got hot in here all at once, so we know we kicked the AC on. It's weird to run the AC when it's cold outside, Um, but what happens is uh, the 10 o'clock, you guys sort of flood this service, and then all your BTUs come along with you. Sometimes it, sometimes it catches, it sneaks up on us. We're like, uh-oh, we're behind it. So we're going to see what we can do. The truth is the AC can't really keep up, so we're just going to move. So that's the plan. <laughs> just, we're out of here. Cool. All right. Uh, very good. Uh, we're starting a series today, a uh, big, long, kind of a mega series, but we're going to do it in three chunks uh, on the book of Galatians, Galatians 1 and 2, Galatians 3 and 4, Galatians 5 and 6. So we're starting with that first, uh, that first chunk here, and so we're going to work our way through. But before we start with that, um, I, just, I want to begin by acknowledging what I think is sort of this unspoken elephant in the room that is kind of in the air in a lot of churches. So what I'm about to say to you is something that preachers are definitely not supposed to say, okay? But I'm going to say it anyway. Here we go. The Bible is actually a really hard book to read. It is. And I'm definitely not supposed to say that. And the reason why I'm not supposed to say that is because you might hear that and then decide, well, if it's a hard book to read and I don't like reading anyway, and so it's not worth it, and so why even bother? And so that's, that's why I'm not supposed to say that. And I get it, and I feel that. Um, so instead, though, what we tend to do, especially as we tell, we tell new Christians that this is, you know, this is actually a simple, accessible little book, and then we give them like a pocket edition of the Gospel of John, or maybe the whole New Testament, definitely not the Old Testament, and we hope they read enough to get hooked before they get scared off, 
Like that's sort of the unspoken strategy. I think that's backfired. I think it's backfired just because it's not true. I don't think it's super honest. People are told, or at least it gets implied, the Bible's an easy read. And then they read it and find it confusing and feel like maybe they're stupid. Um, the Bible is a hard book to read and understand. And listen, if you found it difficult, that does not mean that you're stupid. You know what it means? What it means is you read it. Good job by you. You read it. If you have ever been frustrated by the difficulty of the Bible, I just want to know I'm so proud of you because that means you read it. The real Bible nerds out there, and I know a ton of them, okay? There's real Bible nerds out there. They become Bible nerds because they read the Bible, found it to be confusing, and realized that they were going to have to work really hard in order to understand it correctly. Now, to be clear, I so desperately want you to read the Bible. I so, if I could force you, I would. That's why I'm not in charge. Um, I want you to read it every single day. Um, I just, I'm desperate for it. It's ridiculous how much I want you to read it, even if it's hard. Even if, despite your very best efforts, there are still parts of the Bible that you don't understand. So be it. Guys, it's God's word. It's inspired. God wrote a book. We should read the book. Isn't that, isn't that fair to say? And here's what I would say, even though it's difficult at times. If the Bible were written in some heavenly like code that we could never cipher or crack and we have no chance to ever comprehend a single word of it, I would still want you to read it. I would. I would tell you to like lay it open on your face when you sleep at night, just in the hopes that maybe some of it will drip into your brain. Guys, so what if it's hard to understand sometimes? God wrote us a book. And here's the good part. Some of it's not hard to understand. Some of it's simple and, and direct. Some of it's even easy to understand. And if those parts were the only parts that we could ever understand, then no amount of work would be too much work to get to those parts. But there's more good news, which is we can actually understand the other stuff too, to some extent. Because there are these incredible resources that are available, like really great stuff. Like lot, There's more free stuff than you could ever read that's really good to help you along the way. There are updated translations. There are trustworthy guides. There are more books than you can imagine. Podcasts, videos, sermons, teachers. Guys, you've got me. <laughs> oh, okay, I thought. It's cool. No, I get it. I get it. That's less, I'm joking. That's, that's less exciting. Um, I know. <laughs> but... So I'm telling you the truth. This book is hard, but it's worth it. It's worth it. So with all of that in mind, we are going to take a pretty slow and deliberate walk through the book of Galatians together. It's going to take a while. That's okay, because it's worth it. All right? Let's do it. Okay. Paul, or Paul wrote a letter. It's called Galatians. He wrote a bunch of letters. This one's called Galatians. Um, and here's what Paul did. He went from place to place starting churches. And then he would start a church and go to the next town or start a group of churches and go to the next region. And then he wrote letters back to those churches 
to kind of keep them informed, to help them understand things that might be missing. It's like a really high-stakes pen pal. And that's where a lot of the books of the New Testament came from, this guy, Paul, planning churches, and then writing these letters back under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There was a whole, there was a whole cluster of churches in a region in the Roman Empire that was called Galatia. People who lived in Galatia were called Galatians, so when Paul wrote them a letter, we called it Galatians because that's who it was written to in the first place. Um, and that's our text. Six chapters, 147 verses, probably five or six pages in your Bible. Now, here's the thing, big idea here. Um, when people read the Bible, they mostly do it while looking for something that they might apply directly to their life, all right? And that's good. It's part of the deal, okay? But when you read a book that's this old, okay, like the newest parts of this book are 2,000 years old. This is an ancient text. So when you read a book that's this old, that's not where you start. You don't start with, how does this apply to me? Instead, you say, what does this mean for them, for the Galatians in the first century, the people who was written to in the first place, the audience that the Apostle Paul had in mind when he wrote it. What was he trying to get the Galatians to understand? All right, that's our first objective. This is, again, written 2,000 years ago in a very different context. If you don't do the work to understand what the author meant way back then, you will come away with wrong conclusions for today. For example, I'll just give you an example in case you don't believe me. At one point in the book of Galatians, Paul says that if you get circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you at all. So if you just apply that directly to your life, <laughs> there's a few gentlemen in the room who might get real panicky, start doing some real weird Google searches about like reverse circumcision procedures, Okay. If you do that, don't click the images tabs. Don't, <laughs> don't do it. So we could do that, just panic. And here's, that panic would be wrong because the context is different. It meant something different to them than it does to us. We can't skip that part or we'll start saying that God said things that he didn't actually say. So then, here's what we do. And this will be on the side screens um, there's so much more to it, but then and again, it's really just these two steps. First, we have to ask ourselves, what did the author intend to tell their readers? And for shorthand, that's interpretation. And then, how does this apply to me today? And shorthand, that's application. Interpretation, then application. What did it mean to them? Now, how does this apply to us? Now, the book of Galatians is a particularly good example of this because... Studying the book of Galatians and applying it to modern problems changed the world, like a lot. So here's, here's that story. In the 16th century, there was an especially brilliant monk named Martin Luther. And Luther started studying this, and as he did it, he started noticing some things that were off in the Catholic Church at the time, some kind of big stuff. And what he ended up doing was starting what we now call the Protestant Reformation, which led to the church splitting into Protestant and Catholic. The word Catholic means universal. For the first 1,500 years of church history, there was only the Catholic church. 
If you were a Christian, you were a Catholic. There was no separation between the two. And so this is a major, major shift in recorded history, like a top five event in recorded history. How did that happen? Basically, Luther studied Galatians. And then he applied what he was seeing to the world around him, and it changed everything. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because Luther did this so well. He did it so effectively that sometimes it's kind of important. And by the way, if you're like first time coming to church, you don't really, not into history or anything, this stuff will all be sort of fuzzy and it's okay. Don't worry about it, okay? But for those of you who are, who are, who are kind of tracking right along, the nerds in the room, I say that affectionately, um, Luther studied and applied Galatians so effectively in the 16th century that sometimes people think of Luther's application is the only application. And his interpretation is the only interpretation. But Luther's application was to medieval problems. He applied it to the 16th century. The Catholic Church was selling indulgences and using the threat of purgatory to extort people. It was a mess. And so Galatians says a whole lot that applies specifically to that set of problems. But remember... We need to figure out what Paul was saying in the first century, and only then do we apply it in the 21st century. Luther's application may or may not actually be ours. Does that make sense? Okay, cool. That was pretty good. On the head nodding, everybody. Um, I say that because Luther's work on Galatians was so good that it became the standard, and then out of that standard, it shapes a whole lot of how people in the church think even today and we probably don't even know that it's done that so again the goal is not to understand Galatians through 16th century lenses it is to understand it through first century lenses and then apply it to the 21st century all right so we got to put ourselves in the first century in order to do that we need to know who the main players are in the story in Galatia who are the, the main groups of people in Galatia so we're going to do a little bit of a profile on these three main groups. I think we have a slide that will lay out who the three are. So we're going to talk about these uh, one at a time. Uh, the largest group in Galatia, this is a part of the Roman Empire, okay? The largest group was first century Gentiles, okay? And Gentiles are anybody who's not a Jew, okay? So first century Gentiles, these are mainly Greeks and Romans, and their religious worldview boiled down to this. There are many gods, like a whole pantheon of gods, kind of up in the sky, and they control our destiny. If something good happens, it's because the gods are happy. Something bad happens, it's because the gods are unhappy. And their view of their pantheon of gods is really different than the way we view our God, our one true God. We view him as right and good and just and holy and perfect in every way because he is, okay? But that's not how they saw the pantheon of gods. They saw them kind of like us. Like they were basically humans, but superhumans. That was their idea. Superhumans with lots of power that controlled our destiny. And so what that means is they were petty and they backbite and they were frustrated with one another and they needed their egos stroked. And if you stroke their egos, then they would be in a good mood. And if they're in a good mood, then good things happen to you. Therefore, you got to keep the gods happy by demonstrating your allegiance to them, okay? That was the overwhelming majority of people, and that was their religious perspective. But in Galatia, there was also a whole lot of first century 
Jews. The first century Jews have a different sort of baseline religious perspective. Their idea was that God has established the Jews as his people, and from his people, a Messiah will come, a savior of the world. That Messiah will come and establish God's kingdom here on the earth. The one true God will establish his kingdom here, and then he will renew all things, and through Israel he will bless all nations. Okay? That's their worldview. And because of that, there are two things very important that we must do. First, we need to recognize the Messiah. When he comes, we need to know who he is and recognize him as the coming king. And secondly, we need to make sure that the Messiah recognizes us when he comes as his people. So this is the huge emphasis around Torah or the Old Testament law. We got to keep the law to make us look distinct and set apart from other nations. So when the Messiah comes, we recognize him and he recognizes us. And it was believed among the Jews that if we all did a really good job keeping Torah, keeping the law, then the Messiah would be more likely to come. So it's sort of, and, that, and he fixes everything. So there's a lot of emphasis on the Messiah coming and us keeping the laws. And then there's this third group, first century Christians. They sit on the foundation of Judaism, of the first century Jews, okay? So they said yes to the one true God who's, who's good. And that one true God, through his people, the Israelites, is going to send a Messiah. What the first century Christians said is, actually, the Messiah has come. He has come. His name is Jesus. And he has established his kingdom on this earth, but not in full. Okay? We'll talk about that more in coming weeks. But he has established his kingdom on the earth, and he has begun the project of renewing all things. And because that has already happened, here's what we must do. We must join him in the renewal of all things by walking with Jesus and loving our neighbor. And if you've been here for a while, you say, Aaron, that sounds like a commercial for our church (laughs) because that's our mission and vision statement. But here's the thing. That's why our mission statement is joining God in the renewal of all things. That's where we're at in the story. And how do we do that? The Bible makes it clear. We do it by walking with Jesus and loving our neighbors. It's the best summary we could come up with. That's why it's our mission and vision statement, not so much a commercial for our church, although I like you guys a whole lot. Those are the three main groups in the first century. Um, Now, I want to do an aside here and talk about a fourth group. And this is just an aside for today's sermon, but it's, it's central to our study of Galatians moving forward and uh, to the mission of our church. Over here on the side screen, let's look at a, at a fourth group that's not in the first century, just, to, just so we know. Um, 16th century Christians, that's Martin Luther, okay, the Great Reformation. They had this perspective that basically said, this world's a broken mess. We need to get people out of this world and into heaven where things are the way they should be. We need to get people out of here and into heaven. And in order to do that, we need to get people saved. We need to make sure that those people are legit, okay? Now, look, none of that, don't hear me wrong, none of that is wrong. That's true. But it's a mindset, it's a worldview that kind of misses the forest for the trees. And I would submit to you that most Christians today have more of a 16th century mindset than they do a first century Christian mindset, than a, than a Jesus mindset, okay? The focus today in a lot of Christian circles remains this. 
How do we get people out of here, this mess, and get them into heaven? Okay? And that's, we need to do that. It's important. But here's the thing. The Bible, <laughs> the Bible is much more about getting heaven into you than it is about getting you into heaven. Okay? It's also about getting you into heaven, okay? but it's way more about getting heaven into you. And the more you've got heaven in you, the more you can bring heaven to earth and join God in the renewal of all things. So let me remind you, the final scene in Scripture, you read this Bible, you get to the end of it. Um, the final scene is not all of the Christians getting beamed up and out of here and the whole world being destroyed. That's not what happens. Revelation 20, 21 says it explicitly. The final picture is heaven coming to earth and God establishing his kingdom now in full and him renewing all the things. So, while we're looking at these first century perspectives of Jews, Gentiles, Christians, keep in mind that the vantage point of first century Christians is the one that we're supposed to have. Okay? You guys got it? Pretty good. Okay, now, back to the first century. Here's, here's the three players. First century Gentiles, pantheon of gods, keep them happy. First century Jews, the Messiah is coming. We need to recognize him, and he needs to recognize us. First century Christians, the Messiah has come. He's renewing all things, and we join him in that. Now, you may remember from a few weeks back, it's been maybe a couple months now, I, I talked a bit about pluralism. Do you guys remember that? Um, I explained that in a pluralistic society, there are different uh, worldviews and religious perspectives that coexist in, in sort of one space. And we said that's, that's like a beautiful idea. It really is. But it always leads to uh, at least a measure of conflict, and it very often completely unravels because different worldviews have different goals. We're going this way. You're going that way. Um, and the pursuit of those goals inevitably puts different groups at cross-purposes with one another, and then conflict or unra unraveling occurs. Okay. That is exactly what's happening in Galatia in the first century. So, stick with me. The Galatians are under Roman rule, and that's the first century Gentile perspective, the keep the gods happy religious perspective. Something good happens because... It's because the gods are happy. If something bad happens, it's because we have upset them. Their whole, I can't overstate this, their whole society was built around this understanding. It was just in the air. Keeping the gods happy was on everybody's mind. It was baked into their culture at every turn. And this is the strong majority group. And so prayer, sacrifice, rituals, etc., etc., etc. It was just part of everyday life. And, and this is very important, participation in those rituals was mandatory. It was compulsory. It was not optional. Nobody got to opt out because you got to keep the gods happy. So everybody's participating, period. Okay. Well, like I said, there's a bunch of first century Jews floating around. And what the Romans figured out real quick is that these Jews were not playing around. And they believed what they believed strongly. They didn't do the pantheon of God things. It was the one true God. And they weren't about to participate in all these pagan rituals. They had their own ways of showing allegiance to their one true God. So now we got an issue, don't we? They don't want to play along. 
And here's the issue big picture here. If you're not a history buff, stay with me just a second. It's really important. The Roman Empire had grown like crazy, and they were overextended, the Romans were, trying to govern all these groups of people. And because of that, they were desperate to keep these groups at peace with one another because they were off conquering other people, and they didn't really have time to govern this massive empire. And so they needed everybody to just get along. Okay? So you spend a lot of time going, okay, 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 everybody, okay. And they're trying desperately to keep the peace. And they figured out quickly, these Jews, they're never coming on board. They're never going to do this stuff. And they figured, if we don't compromise on this, we might literally have to kill every single one of them. They didn't want that. They're trying to keep the peace. So, very important. They made one exception. One Okay? And politically, it was not popular, but they made one exception just for the Jews, one religious exemption. The Jews, provided they played by a certain set of rules, okay? they would not have to sacrifice to or pray to or otherwise jump through the hoops in order to appease the gods. They got an exemption. Okay, well, good deal, right? Great news for the Jews. But... I have a series of tests, by the way, built in. Here's the first one to see if you're paying attention. So let's see. you got to sit out loud now. So the Gentiles get this religious exemption. How do you think the Gentiles felt about that? Come on, you're right. Not great. You got it. There we go. Not great. Because the Gentiles were going, whoa, 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 why are you participating? We're trying to keep the gods happy. And they're very temperamental up there in the sky, and you're mocking them. Everybody else is playing along, and you won't. And you've got your fancy religious exemption, and you're going to make the gods angry, and we're all going to have to pay because of it. So, next test question. Who got blamed when anything went wrong in Galatia? There you go. They were, this should ring a bell, they were a ready-made scapegoat, right? Of course they were. So, that's the context. If anything goes wrong, blame the Jews, because they won't play nice. It was a very fragile arrangement. The Gentiles were afraid that the Jews were going to ruin everything for them. The Jews were afraid that the Romans would take away their exemption, because they got real problems if that happens. It's fraught. So that's the situation. It's already tense. And then this Paul fella comes along to Galatia, starts telling everybody about Jesus, the Messiah. And a whole bunch, get this, of Jews and Gentiles sign on for the Jesus thing. And now there's a third group, the Christians. Now, some people, it's important, some people misread the book of Galatians and they think that it's a Jews versus Christian thing. It's not that. Think about it. The Jews have been looking for a Messiah all along. So when Paul says Jesus is the Messiah, he isn't thinking that he's leaving Judaism because the fact is he's doing the most Jewish thing ever. Based on the foundation they've had for thousands of years, they're saying this is happening. He's putting his hope in the Messiah that the Jews have been talking about all along. He's not fighting the Jews. He's informing them. He's saying, you were right. And now he has come and he is Jesus. So, with that in mind, here comes another test question. Do you suppose that these new Jesus people, these Christians, do you think that they thought the all-important religious exemption should apply to them too? Yes. 
Yes, yeah, very good. <laughs> of course they did. Of course they did. Nothing about what we believe is a pantheon of gods. We're building on the Jewish foundation. Of course, we're doing the most Jewish thing ever and saying the Messiah has come. So, of course, the exemption applies to us. Okay. So, again, let's get the lay of the land. There's a group of Jews and Gentiles. They're worshiping together in these new little churches all over. And they're exercising the Jewish religious exemption. Here comes another question. How do the first century Gentiles feel about that? Even worse. Oh. Not great. Not great. Now, let's see if we really get it. How do the first century Jews feel about that? Yeah, not great. Not great at all. Because everything's now at risk. And this third group is messing everything up. And so, now, these new Christians, brand new baby Christians, all they do is love Jesus. They're taking fire from both sides. Everybody hates them. Everybody blames them. It was tenuous before. Now it's powder keg. Y'all tracking with me? Okay. So let's think about, for a minute, about how that played out within these little baby churches. Now, Jews and Gentiles are in this new church together. They've sacrificed everything to follow Jesus. Everybody hates them for it. And they start looking at each other now with real skepticism. This is why. Because the Jews are living as Christian Jews. And the Gentiles are living as Christian Gentiles. They believe the same stuff, but they're living their lives in different ways. So there's skepticism. The Jews are going, hey, 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 you're building on our thing. Why, like, why aren't you living like Jews? And the Gentiles are going, wait a minute, why are you still living like people who are looking for the Messiah? Does it make sense? And the Jews are saying, no, no, no. Why aren't you keeping all the laws? That's the deal. And the Gentiles are saying, we're keeping the same moral laws. We have the same values. We're all going the way of Jesus together. Why are you still keeping the laws that were designed to make Jews distinct so the Messiah would recognize you? He's come, and he did, and Jesus has changed all that. So, within the church, getting upset with one another, and that's in their safe little bubbles. Outside of their bubbles, everybody hates them. <laughs> and when there's that much tension, things start to crack. And here's how it cracked in Galatia. There's a group that rose up probably from within the churches, a group called the Judaizers. Okay? And what they're saying was, these new Gentile Christians, enough of this wishy-washy nonsense, they got to keep the law. They got to keep the whole law, and they got to get circumcised. I mean, if you, let's prove it, okay? They get circumcised. How do we know that these people are really committed? And the Gentiles are saying, "Look, we love Jesus. We've given him everything. We're being persecuted all around for all this stuff. Of course, we're committed." And the Jews are saying, "Oh yeah? Did you slice off part of your penis? Because I did." You see? You see how that can be a thing? And when you're reading Galatians and you're going, why do these weirdos care so much about circumcision? That's why. The Jews are going, you're putting our religious exemption at risk because you're not really Jews. And it seems like you're just taking the easy way out. And we won't be convinced 
until you've got some skin in the game. You got it. You got it. Did you know that's where that expression came from? It's not. It's not where it came from. I just thought of it and couldn't help myself. That's funny. <laughs> oh, jeez. If you don't know what circumcision is, you're so confused right now. If that's the case, talk to Sharon after church. She'll explain it to you. We'll fix it. It'll be fine. <laughs> All right. So that's the situation. And into that exact situation, there's a guy named Paul who started these churches, who's off in another place starting new churches, and he, got, he thinks, all right, I need to write these people a letter to help sort that situation out. Does that make sense? Okay, good. That means David could come up, because we're going to start studying that letter next week. So just an introduction today, and David's going to help us close things out, and I want to keep these screens up for a bit longer because we're going to have Selah as we do every week. Um, this is a way to pray and reflect, um, and Selah is not about circumcision. Um, Selah is instead we're going to reflect on, on this question. I'd like for you to consider it with me here. Which of these kind of four groups do you actually identify with the most? Because you might go, okay, first century Gentiles, not even close. I don't believe in a pantheon of gods. I don't think there's grumpy people with furrowed brow in the sky. I don't think we have to keep them happy, et cetera, et cetera. Sure, of course not. But maybe, actually, you do. Because if you're in this mindset that goes, as a Christian, if you're saying, if I do something bad, something bad will happen to me. And if I do something good, something good will happen to me then I would tell you, you've got actually a pagan mindset and you're thinking like a first century Gentile and you're missing the beauty of the cross where Jesus has forever redeemed you. There's no wrath in God for you, none whatsoever. And it's really hard to separate ourselves from that idea because the whole world works that way. I mean, in the world... When you do something bad, usually bad things happen. When you do something good, usually good things happen. And so we just apply that to our status before the Lord. The cross speaks a better word. It's a better story from the cross. It says we are the redeemed children of God. We are given his righteousness. We are fundamentally different. Maybe you have a pagan first century Gentile perspective. And if so, Jesus would like to invite you to something better. First century Jews, they seem so different, and yet they're stumbling on a very similar problem as the first century Gentiles. Think, if I obey the laws, the things that I want to happen will happen. Now, here's the thing. So many of the things that God has marked out as sin, he's done it just because he loves us, and our life will go better if we obey him, okay? And so again, that's a real connection where we go, wait a minute, th my life actually does go better when I walk with Jesus and submit to him and everything. That's true. But if your identity is wrapped up in how high a percentage you're hitting in the pursuit of living for Jesus, then maybe you've got more of a first century Jewish mindset than you do of a first century Christian. And in this group over here, the 16th century Christians. The, this sort of says, Jesus is the answer, um, and what we really need to do 
is get saved and get everybody saved. And then we get out of here, man. We're going to heaven where things aren't busted the way they are here. What that's doing is missing the story. Two really important parts of the story. Number one, it misses the power of the gospel to transform you and to transform this world. It becomes, let's hunker down till we zap out of here. But what Christ has called us to do is to be transformed by the blood of God, by, by the beauty of the gospel, to be transformed and then to share that transformation with the world around us because he's already begun to renew all things. It's not just about getting people into heaven. It's about getting heaven into us and into the world around us. And so I hope you have a first century Christian mindset. The Messiah has come. He is Jesus. He is Lord. We bow our knee and surrender our allegiance to him. We follow him in everything, not because we're afraid, but because we're grateful. And because we want to live our lives for his glory. And through that, we are joining him in his work of renewing all.